right, we got a rowdy bunch today. I like it. You ready to hear God's word? Okay, so this morning in James, we are going to look at money. You ready to hear God's word? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, not so excited anymore, are we? Uh, if you're new with us, welcome. Uh, so glad you're here. My name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor. Uh, hey, if we haven't met yet either, I'd love to meet you and your family. Uh, I know sometimes it's uh, strange to meet a new pastor or hard to get to know a family. Uh, you can come down front. We'd love to meet you here. You can grab me in the hallway, but I'd, I'd love to say, hey, help you get connected to our church with the other pastor. Pastor James is in the back helping us with small groups, and Pastor Alex is here as well. And so um, one of the other things about our church that's unique, it seems like, which is a little sad to say, is uh, we open our Bibles. <laughs> so if you got your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. We're going to be in James chapter 5. James chapter 5 is where we're going to spend some time. And as you turn there, just sort of as a little bit of a recap, in the way of recap for those who might be new with us today, James has begun over the last several weeks to contrast and compare the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of culture, the wisdom of wants and desires and preferences, contrasting and comparing that with the wisdom of God, the wisdom of His Word. What does it look like to have a standard outside of ourselves so that we know and live obedience according to what His Word says? And James has been laying it out from a sense of humility as compared to pride. And so this idea of the humble being those who yield to the wisdom of God and allow God's word to be top priority in their life. Sorry, I got to pause again. We got to fix the lights again because the eyes of the pastor are talk amongst yourselves about money. Well, there we go. There. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, so refocus, Kevin. When this idea of humility, when it comes to the wisdom of God and allowing God's word to be top priority in your life, and he's been contrasting that with the idea of the prideful, and the prideful will be those who consider their rights, uh, their wants, their will, their desires as more important than God's word and God's design. Pride says, no, I, I don't want to live by the wisdom of God in all areas of my life. I want him in some areas of my life. And I want to determine which one of those areas I want his word to govern. And so um, I want God's word over here in this area of my life. But I, I kind of got this one, God. I'll take care of this. You take care of that one. You speak to that one. But I know what's best over here in this area. I want to decide. I want to do life my way. And James says this will begin to show itself in three primary uh, ways. And one of those ways would be the way we speak to one another. Do you, do you look at what the scriptures say about how we should speak to one another? Or do you want to do it your way? And then it also uh, is how we decide we should communicate to one another. Who, who governs what we say and when and how? And the third way is the way we view and speak about our tomorrows. Because we say things like, well, we're going to do this or that this afternoon. We're going to do this or that next month or next year, and it's all good. And we live and speak like the poem that we looked at last week, Invictus, where it says, we are the master of our own fate. We are the captain of our own souls. 
And we went, really? Like, really, are you really the master of your own fate? Are you really the captain of your soul? And while James 4 speaks to those three things, James is going to continue in chapter 5 to say, as you saw the pride of the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God in those three areas, ultimately, it will also begin to show itself in the way we handle wealth, the way we handle our resources. And I want to be clear, this probably isn't going to be the typical message you've heard about wealth if you grew up in a traditional uh, setting, perhaps. Because I want to be clear, ultimately, the Bible has no prohibition against wealth. Just to make sure we're clear, the Bible does not have a prohibition against wealth. No. So if you come from a more traditional background where you've heard it said that God really, really loves the poor and God really, really hates the rich, we should read our Bibles together uh, because that's not what your Bible says. It's not taught anywhere. In fact, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, to instruct those who are rich. He said, he told them to instruct them because in that early church, there were a number of wealthy people who were coming to faith in Christ. And so Paul says, be careful, church, that you're not conceited and don't fix your eyes, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Just make sure you keep your eyes focused on God. And Paul says this to all of the socioeconomic classes in the early church community, he looks whether you have a little or a lot. Because if you have a little, you can keep your eyes focused on wealth. And if you have a lot, you can get your eyes focused on wealth. He says, regardless of where you are socioeconomically, make sure you focus on Christ. Rich or poor, check your focus. And what you'll find is, whenever you read about money in the Bible, and just to be clear, uh, Jesus speaks more about money than mercy, forgiveness, repentance, and the end times combined. So apparently he knows what we struggle with. So I just want to make sure we, we know that up front. And so whenever the Bible speaks about resources or money, they're not condemned, but they're always surrounded by cautions. And one of those cautions would be, here's an example, it would be the caution of stewardship. Like, hey, look, if you're going to accumulate wealth, make sure you know that the earth and all that belongs to it is not yours, but God's. Therefore, God calls you to be a steward because it's not yours. It all belongs to him. Whatever you think you have now is going to eventually go to somebody else. You don't own anything. You're just a steward of what he's given you. There's also the caution of contentment, meaning that what we have is generally fine until we look at your iPhone 15. And then my phone is really slow. And it never works right, and it's dropping calls, and so of course, I need the latest model. I was fine with it, though, until I saw what you had. I was fine with it until the newest model comes out. It's the comparison trap, that phone, that car, that, that house, those clothes. You know what? They don't work for us anymore. 
And so Paul charges those in Philippi, a very generous community, he says, to be content. He says, I've learned how to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. He says, I know how to get along in humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. And then he uses the phrase that we all memorize and use it out of context. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And just to be clear, that, that's a, a passage about contentment. Now, I appreciate the old school boxer, Evander Holyfield, and he would write on his boxing shorts on the waistband, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I thought, I don't, I don't think, Holyfield, you know exactly what that means, because it, it's not as if, you know, God, I can do all things, so, so I'm, I can beat up this guy because I wear this verse on my waist. No. That's not what it means. The verse ultimately means I, with Christ in my life, can learn to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Put that under your eyes on a football field. Because whether I win or lose, God, I will worship you. That's what it means. I can be content with my life because it's found in you. So there's a contentment caution when it comes to, to wealth. There's also a caution of allurement. Because if I were to ask you, please raise your hand if you want to get rich today. And we go, well, I mean, I don't want to raise my hand, you know, but, you know, you know, you're about money, not me, right? But inside, you're going, ooh, ooh, me, me, pick me, please, pick me, please, please, anybody, pick me. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says to this young pastor, apprentice, Timothy, he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's the second verse we quote all the time out of context because we say money's the root of all evil we need to go back and look at our bibles again because it says the love of money is what's evil it's not money it's your love of money and it's not the root of all evil it is a root of all kinds of evil see that's that changes what it means and i don't know that we always look at that and so what's the point there if god has given you a gift and you've got the midas touch Let's say everything you touch, you're just really good with money, and you kind of fall backwards into money. That's not wrong, especially if you can do it in this economy. He's like, you're a rare breed. Enjoy it. Make oodles of money. That's not the issue. The question really is, what do you do with it once you have it? That's what he's asking. What do you do with it once you have it? That's really where James is going to go here in James chapter 5. Now, this is the third warning regarding money in this book. So if you remember back to James chapter 1, James talked about not putting your hope in the uncertainty of riches. That's how he started. And then in James chapter 2, he talked about not showing partiality to the wealthy. Because he says, you, we, we have this tendency to roll out the red carpet if someone drives into the parking lot in one kind of car, but if someone rolls up on their bicycle you know, then we don't roll out the red carpet. And we let these other people come in and sit in the best seats, and, we, and we, we let them serve on boards. And the other person, though, we don't because we view them as less wealth. He's like, don't do that. 
That's not what's supposed to happen. And now comes the third one, and James is going to give four primary rebukes to these people. And let me tell you, none of these rebukes are easy. Now, just to be clear if you're new, this book that James wrote is not a book that would be entitled How to Win Friends and Influence People. Wouldn't you agree? He, he does not care whether you click the like button or dislike button. He's not on social media going, I'm going to lose followers. I don't think he cares at all. He's a straight shooter. He's just so passionate that our professed faith matches our lived out faith. And the first issue he's going to target is the prideful sin of hoarded wealth. The wisdom of the world says, hey, go out and accumulate more and more and more. Just hoard it so you can use it on yourself. But the wisdom of God says, be content with what you have. And so if you gain wealth, if that happens, make sure you recognize that you're just a steward of those resources. Enjoy the food that is your portion, but mobilize these resources missionally into the kingdom of God and stop mobilizing them into your castle of you. Because we like to build castles and not resource the kingdom. And that's a problem. Take a look at verse 1. It starts just like it did, by the way, in James chapter 4, 13. He says, come now. Your Bible might say, now listen. And if you remember, that's a comedic phrase. He's actually making fun of you or these people here. What he's saying is, he's saying, listen, um, what's wrong with you? Because I'm about to address something with you that you think is right, but you clearly know is wrong. He's like, what's wrong with you? What, what you think and how you live is ridiculous. I shouldn't have to be dealing with this. And, and so he says, now listen, you rich people, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand? What do you think? And, and, and how you live is so, so contrary to what God says. And to be clear, that phrase, rich people, doesn't mean affluent. Because we hear rich people, right? And we go, well, I'm not rich. You sure? Because he's not speaking to affluence here. That actually word translated means those who have an abundance of earthly possessions that would exceed the normal experience. That's different. Those who have an abundance of earthly possessions that would exceed the normal experience. And so the question is, what's the normal experience? Because when it comes to our wealth, we always compare up, don't we? We're always like, well, I don't have as much as them. Very rarely do we go, wow, that must be tough. I am so grateful for what God has given me. I don't deserve what I have. God, you've lavished on me, and there's so many people who make less than me. Thanks, God. Thanks. See, we never compare ourselves to those who have less. Did you know that the medium household income, now when I say median, just so you know, is median is there's as many people to the left as on the right, okay? But it's different than average, and so the, the median income for the United States in 2022, for a, for a husband and wife, for a dual-income home, $74,000. $74,000. That's the median. 52000 if it's an individual. Some of you are like, well, I know what side I'm on. You clearly can look at your life and decide. But isn't it interesting that we only compare that to the United States? Is the book only written in the United States? Yeah, you know what the median income for the worldwide population is? 
Household income, $12,200. Now what side are you on? Right? $12,200. That's the worldwide median, the normal experience on planet Earth. So who's he talking to? The guy that's got two thumbs, this guy right here. That's who he's talking to, this guy right here, all of us. Verse 1, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. That sounds great, doesn't it? This morning's going to be a wonderful morning at church. The word James uses here is the same word Jesus uses in Mark chapter 12. And in Mark chapter 12, he's telling a story about a wealthy guy. And a wealthy guy who wants to give to his church. And he comes in, he walks up to the temple, and he's carrying a big fat check. And he's letting everybody see how many zeros are on that check as he walks up to that tithe box in the middle of the temple. And he's like, <laughs> and he drops that thing right in there and lets everyone see. And he compares that, a guy who is giving out of the leftovers of his income, he compares that against a widow who walks up in humility behind the scenes and gives the very first that she has. Think Cain and Abel. Ever wonder why one was accepted and one was not? Why God was not happy with one? He was happy with the other? It's because one said, here is my absolute best. I'm going to give to you, God, first, and then I'll figure out what to do with the rest. I'll live here. And the other one said, I'm going to deal with me first, and then if I have anything left, God, I'll give you some of what's left over. Jesus is talking about that same thing in Mark chapter 12. Who does Jesus commend? Not that guy. He commends her. So remember, the point isn't, I think we get caught up, which side of the median am, am I on? That's not the discussion. The point is, the danger is, people who make more tend to build for themselves first. They tend to build their houses, their pleasures, their momentary joys, their savings first. They tend to build their castle first, and then maybe give a little something after that, if there's anything left over and their needs are met. James says, Jesus says, Paul says, pick one. I don't care. They all say the same thing. They're all trying to make sure we realize that wealth cannot stay the hand of eternal judgment. They say, you've got wealth, that's okay. Good for you, actually. If you've got wealth, that's okay. But in Matthew 10, Jesus put it this way. He's saying, friends, good for you. You've got a lot of money. But here's the problem, he says. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, good for you. You've got a nice house? Okay. You've got a nice retirement? Okay. You've got a big home? Nice stuff? Good for you. But make no mistake, that's not the issue. Because he's like, if you're not right with God when it comes to your money, you've got bigger problems because you can't buy your way out of that. If you're not on mission with God, with your resources, you've got bigger problems. If you are the best builder of your castle and a terrible mobilizer of your money missionally in the kingdom of God, you've got bigger issues. Your priority is in the wrong spot. How you doing mobilizing your money in the kingdom of God? And James is saying these people are accumulating wealth with the focal point of their life. 
It's their passion. It's, it's their desire to, to, to build their own riches. And the interesting thing with riches is, the more you have, the less faith you think you need. Because my money could get me out of that. That's what we think. That's what's being whispered in your ear. Wealth is dangerous, and you've got to keep an eye on your heart and on your mind. That's why Jesus said, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Do you realize that verse, that eye of the needle verse, has nothing to do with sowing? Some of us are like, oh. And you know, recently this has been contested. But since 300 years after these words were spoken, all the way up until I would say the last 20 years, the interpretation of this passage was, in Jerusalem, there's a gate, big gate. What they do is they close the gate when they bar it, then they open what's called a needle gate, a door within a door, and that door, that second door they open, is just big enough for one person to walk through. And the reason they do that is because when you walk through it, if someone is going to raid the city, you have to walk through one at a time so they can pick you off one at a time. But if the city is on high alert and you're bringing supplies into the city, a camel can't get through that door. And so they take the camel and they have to unload all the supplies off that camel and they have to work with that camel and has to get as low as it possibly can and has to wiggle itself through that door. And it's very, very painful for the camel. That's what he's talking about. Is it possible for the camel to get through that door? Yes, it's not utterly impossible for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. It might be able to do it, but it's going to hurt. The concept is for the wealthy who have accumulated for themselves so much wealth that they don't think they need much faith. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through that little gate than for the wealthy person to get into glory. They might make it, but it's going to hurt. Because they've got split priorities. They've got split priorities. That's the concept he's after. So it's easy to develop a false sense of security because of wealth. Because if you haven't noticed, wealth is a moving target. You experience that? So if you ask our young adults, our college-age students who are here, what they think is wealth, maybe then what you think is wealth, could be radically different. That's why Proverbs 23 says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Because what we do is, somewhere in our life, especially when we're younger, we say, if I can just make this amount of money, then my family will be okay. And we set that target. And then somewhere along the way, we hit that target oftentimes. Maybe a spouse goes back to work. Maybe you get a raise. Who knows what happens in your life? And then you're like, hey, this is good. But you know what happens? You know what? If we could just make this amount of money, then we wouldn't be great. We would be really great. And so it's this sort of moving target that happens. If we could just make a little more, then my family would be great. You know what we learn as we do this? We spend what we make. That's what that teaches. You spend what you make. That's what happens. And so you could get a raise, or you could win the lottery. 
You could win American Idol and get a recording contract. You could do whatever you want. You're going to spend what you make. That's just what happens with money. And James' caution here is don't set your sights on the accumulation of wealth because it's like grasping the wind. And as soon as you think you've arrived, it's moved away. The sights have to be on how much can we mobilize into the kingdom of God for his glory and not how much I can spend on my castle. That has to be the focus of his people. And in verse 2, he really gets into it. He gets so much softer, by the way. Not. He says, your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Your portfolio has disintegrated. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Amen, right? Amen. No one says amen after that. That's terrible, right? And so, because in those days, it's a little different than us, a change of clothes was a big deal. So if you had multiple changes of clothes, you were considered wealthy. If you had silver and gold, you were considered wealthy. And this concept of these things testifying against you is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust or corrosion destroy, but instead store it for yourself yeah, treasures in heaven. You know these verses. It's not like you're like, what? Jesus said what? That's so crazy, right? We know that's what he says. The concept he's bringing out here is heart follows treasure. These people who have much are now obsessed with much. Their life is so much more complex. It's so crazy. Our church is actually going through this too. The example I used first service, which I said I wasn't going to use this service, but I'm going to, is it's funny. Uh, I have relatives who, um, who really have four boys, and they bought four wave runners for their lake. Mistake number one, maybe. But, uh, you know, but what we don't oftentimes factor in is, what's the maintenance on those things with four boys riding those things on a lake? And when an uncle goes over, and we beat the pieces out of those things, you know, but, but you gotta, you got to make, so it's not just the accumulation of your wealth, you've got to be able to sustain that wealth. When I say our church, part of the things we look at here, the reason why we don't go into debt is because anything we build, we have to be able to sustain. But that's part of, it's never just one thing. You buy a house, how many of you are like, oh my gosh. You know, that's why it's called a money pit oftentimes. You're just pouring money into your house because you're trying to sustain the stuff that they bought. And it says that these people, they're storing up for themselves a sense of judgment. The idea here is that their passion in life is the prideful pursuit of wealth. What do you think is going to happen with their spiritual life? If I spend all my time pursuing the accumulation of wealth and maintaining all those things I've bought... How much time do I have left for my spiritual life? Your spiritual life becomes anemic. But man, they're loaded financially. And at the end of the day, God is not impressed with he who dies with the most toys. I did a funeral on Friday. I've never seen a hearse pull away from a funeral pulling a U-Haul. I've never seen that. He's not, it's not like God goes, oh, you know what? They own a boat. Well, they're in. But you don't own a boat, so you know what? You're out. The kingdom is not for you. No, God is concerned with the heart. 
He's always been concerned with the heart. That's what he's always been after. And so he's saying they're, they're storing up for themselves this sense of judgment in the last days. And you go, the last days? Yeah, what he's saying is the time between when Jesus came the first time and when he comes the second time, that's the last days. We are living in the last days. And his point is, time is short. Stop hoarding your resources. Instead, mobilize them missionally for the progress of the gospel and not your appetite. Mobilize them into in, the mission field. Mobilize them into your community to help the poor, the hurting, the widows. Mobilize them into discipleship. Mobilize them into your local church and church plannings. Because you know what's happened for far too many Christians? Money has become our mistress. That's what's happened. For far too many Christians, money has become my mistress. We just don't want to say that. Because in verse 4, you'll notice a second issue of concern. He's not, it's not just the hoarding of wealth primarily for personal consumption, but the accumulation of wealth through unjustly taking advantage of others. It's an ends justify the means type of thinking where he says, look, whoever you have to climb over, climb over. Whoever you have to rip off, you know, just, just rip them off in order to make another dollar. You know, it's nothing personal. It's just business. You heard that, right? It's nothing personal. It's just business. I wish someone would say that to me because I'd love to quote scripture back. You know, it's like, you know, better than silver and gold is a good name. Because you know what matters more than your wealth? Your character. That's what matters. Your character matters more than your wealth. And I don't know that we believe that. It's not our ability to make money. Verse 4 says, look, exclamation point, the wages you failed to pay the workers who, moved your, who mowed your fields are, are crying out against you. You might think you're getting away with it in the world's eyes, but you're not. Somebody notices it. Somebody sees it. It says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. We go, oh, Lord Almighty. That's a big deal. You know what that phrase means? It's actually better translated, Lord of Heaven's Armies. That title is a military term, meaning he, he is willing to mobilize the armies of heaven against you. That's great, right? Against me. It's a military term. It means strongly supporting, meaning you might be able to get away with it in your culture. You might be able to get away with it in your conscience. You might be able to get away with it in your city, just ripping people off. But the God who defends the defenseless hears. Our God sees, and he's not at all happy when we do that. And so he will come and bring judgment upon those who earn a living dishonestly. That's the concept. Third issue is found in verse 5. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. That sounds so great, right? Because <laughs> again, the theme... Uh, of pride just creeping in because the problem with these people is, again, not that they had wealth. It's what they did with it. They prioritized their wants, their desires, their wishes, their self-satisfaction. And to be clear, self-indulgence doesn't mean, you know what, I went out to dinner and I had the pie afterwards. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. So it, it, it's not that they had a boat or that they had a nice car. It's how they view their stuff. Is your life about fattening your world or about growing the kingdom of God? 
Whose kingdom are you really investing in? Billy Graham said the most theological book in your possession is your checkbook. Show me their checkbook, and I will show them their God. That's super convicting. He says, or, or does every dollar you make, every item in your world, build your fame, your kingdom, your castle, or the missional movement of the Lord? The last days are coming. You're living in the last days. And really the worst part of that verse is really the last three words, where he says the day of slaughter. That's terrible. That's a farming phrase where you fatten cows to become hamburgers. You fatten cows to become filet mignons and sirloin tips. and You just, you, you kept them in a pen that's just big enough for them to be comfy, but not big enough for them to break a sweat in because you want them to just rest and keep eating. Just keep fattening yourself up. You're looking good. You look great. Just keep going. You deserve more. You deserve more. Here's some more. He just keeps fattening them up. That's the idea that James gives to these people who are living a life of selfish indulgence. He says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You're living your life for the here and now, and you don't see what God is doing anywhere in your city, anywhere in your community, and you certainly don't know what his priority is for all of eternity. You're just getting fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter financially, and you're missing the point. God didn't give you those resources so you'd spend them all on this guy. That's not why you have them. And the final issue is verse 6. Well, they use the wealth that they have. Apparently, this was a problem in their day. I don't know if it's a problem in our day, but they, they're using their resources to work the system to twist the truth, to manipulate circumstances for their own personal gain. Verse 6, it says, You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. See, there's a strange sense of expectation that comes with wealth. The expectation is the wealthy end up sitting in the seats of honor, unfortunately, in organizations, in institutions, in churches, and whatever, because it seems that a man's wealth makes room for them and not a man's character. A man's wealth tends to make room for them and not a man's character. And what he's speaking to is those who would be in situations of influence because of affluence, who have a position of control because of the size of their wallet. And so what they're able to do is they're able to manipulate politicians. I mean, it doesn't happen in our day, but apparently it was happening in their day. And they were using those things to manipulate city governments and change and influence city governance. They were redoing zoning lines and changing things and making things to benefit themselves and their politics and their viewpoints. Because of their influence and their affluence, they became judge and jury. But he doesn't stop there. If you notice, he says, you've condemned and you've murdered. You're judge, jury, and executioner because of your money. James says, that's not right. You put to death the righteous man. You cut off his influence. You cut out anything they have to say. You suppress everything about him. This man who lives in humble means, who lives in contentment, who lives by God's word, it's the man who doesn't want to play your nonsense games. The man who doesn't want to dive into the political world with you and try to pull strings and, and lobby and to make things happen. The righteous man who entrusts himself to God, you go after that guy, and it says 
You shouldn't do that. Don't do that. That's wrong. And so the idea that James is laying out in this section is not that if you don't have wealth, you're a loser. And if you do have wealth, then you're a sinner and you're going to hell. Okay? That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, church, if God has given you wealth, even relative wealth, like if you've got money in your bank account, if you've got a, a roof over your head, if you've got some food, even if it's ramen noodles, he says, then you have a stewardship opportunity. If you've got something in your life, you've got a stewardship opportunity. So what are you going to do with what you've been given? You're going to hoard it? You're just going to make your castle bigger and bigger and bigger. So when you die, you leave that castle to your relatives and they're just going to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. Or are your, is your family going to look back generationally and say, look what we poured into the kingdom of God. Look how missionally we, our city is different because of the resources God dropped off in, in our lap. Am I going to be discontent, use it all myself and then justify it? Am I going to use it and take advantage of others? See, it's interesting to me that when you take someone's faith and you put it on the table and you do a little autopsy, you begin to see the things which people truly submit to the Lord. And so when you first come to faith in Christ, one of the easiest things to put under the Lordship generally is our language. Lots of people grew up, this guy here, using foul language and using it very, very well and using it very, very often. But then the Christian submits that area and usually very early on we submit that to the Lordship of Christ and God's like, hey, you need to find a new vocabulary. And I'm like, do I? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, you need to find a new vocabulary. Why? Because when you use profanity, it lets the world know two things. It lets the world know, Kevin, what's going on inside your heart and that you submit that area of your life to the wisdom of the world and not to the wisdom of the word. You're like, oh. So that's kind of an obvious one. And as we submit these areas to the Lordship of Christ, pretty soon we move from our tongue. We move to, like, what we listen to. We move to what we watch. And we move to, uh, I don't know, things like uh, who we hang out with, maybe, and so on. But when it comes to the way we handle our money, it's amazing to me how the wisdom of the world creeps into our money. And very rarely does the wisdom of God just sort of creep into our money. Pride normally creeps in. Very rarely do we say, God, you've given it to me. What do you want me to do with it? I'd love to know the order, God. Tell me the order that you would like me to use, the resources you've given me. Usually when it comes to the resources we've got, we say things like, I earned it. I'm the one slaving at work all the time. I deserve it. That's what we say. That we earned it and we deserve it. And so we spend it on us first as if you know, maybe if there's something left over, we might lob it God's way. We might. We tend to be just like these people. And if there's anything I would want to leave with you, it would be that James is hammering this idea that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus does not want to be Lord of some of your life. He does not want to be Lord of most of your life. 
He wants to be Lord of it all. Every aspect of your life submitted to him in humility, submitted to him that the wisdom of God would begin to show itself, not just in how you talk, not just in what you listen to, not just in what you watch. Some of you are so diligent about what you watch and so diligent about, you know, I only listen to to Christian music. Imagine if we did that with our resources. How we were that diligent with our resources. But then it would show itself in how you handle the money he's entrusted to your care. And he's called you to steward in his kingdom, not yours. That our deeds would match our faith. That there would be a sense that if the world would simply watch the way we handle our stuff, the world would see something different about us. And so this week as I close, here's what I was thinking. Acts chapter 2. If you've never read Acts chapter 2, you should. It talks about the early church kind of what they prioritized, how they did life together. I thought, what if we all live? What if the church family, I'm just dreaming for a second, so relax. We're not implementing this strategy, but this is what I thought. What if we said, you know what? What if our stuff was like our stuff? And what if we lived like mobilizing our stuff together? You know, what's really funny right now in culture is when I I do a lot of premarital counseling, we have several people about to get married. When I talk to so many of them, you know what almost all of them say? First is, they're not combining their resources, they're keeping separate checking accounts, and most of them have three, four, and five checking accounts that they're going to manage. But they're managing them completely separate. So the days of taking, hey, two becoming one, well, we're going to become one, we're just not going to come financially one. We're not going to put it all in here. Of course, that fosters mistrust and more. But what if we just did that? We said, you know what? We're just going to combine our resources. You know, what would it, I can't help but go, God, what would it look like if a wave of generosity began to erupt in your people where if there was just a sense where we would go, you know what? I got a couple of bucks and it's not mine. God, is there anybody here around me that has a need? Anybody in my family has a need, God? I haven't heard of one yet, but so God, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take those couple bucks and I'm just going to kind of set it over here. And I'm going to set it over here and I'm going to wait until you kind of tell me who it is that, that I can mobilize this in your kingdom. And I'll just keep it right here for now. But if someone's in need, then the answer is yes, God. I want to be able to answer yes. So God, I want to be releasing with the resources under your wisdom because your kingdom is greater than my castle. I thought, wouldn't that be fun to watch? Some of you are like, no. <laughs> I, I do. I think it would be fun to watch. And, and you know what the world would say? The world would say, that is totally impractical. And we would say, exactly.